0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. UK inflation is down, mirroring a drop in the United States as investors continue to debate whether central bankers will continue to raise short-term borrowing rates. And a huge week for earnings last week on both sides of the Atlantic as Airlease, Babcock, Dassault, Lockheed Martin, Kinetic, Saab, TALIS, and many more all report earnings. After a wave of devastating flight cancellations, United Airlines negotiated a deal with its pilots as American negotiates its own deal with its own pilots. We'll see whether or not there are any parallels between what's happening in commercial aviation, as we saw with Spirits' negotiation and its workforce. And Germany expresses misgivings about exporting arms to Saudi Arabia and issues that could prove problematic for the fighter partnership that it's engaged in to develop a next generation fighter with Paris and Madrid. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Ablafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, joining us from the Bali Bureau. Guys, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, and I'm really glad that we're not doing the program O Dark Thirty as
1: we did last week. It's great to be here, Margo. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, as always, Vargo.
2: Great to be on, and uh, greetings from the tropical paradise that is Bali. (laughs) Uh,
0: Indeed, and and this time, uh, I have to apologize that you are joining us very, very late uh, in the day, Richard, so we appreciate it, and we'll keep the program rolling. Um, Ron, uh, walk us through, right, interesting week for markets, still some of the Uh, right? The recession, not recession, Fed, what they're going to do. The economy continues to roar uh, onward, um, sort of the bigger drivers and how the group performed. And we'll get into earnings here in detail in a second, but, you know, mention whatever, you know, top line things shaped investors and earnings as well.
1: Yeah, it was pretty, you know, boring week, honestly, given everything going on. Um, The S&P was up, um, you know, maybe, you know, just about 70 basis points, uh, if you look at some of the big names we cover, you know, Boeing was down about 60 basis points, Northrop up about 60, um, it, those kind of moves it just wasn't a very exciting week. Um, you know, the, the the champ for the week was Rocket Lab. It was up almost mm. 20%. Uh, and I think that was on the tails of their 40th successful launch. I mean, they've really kind of, I think, proved to the world that they have real legacy here. And, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a real business. We've been saying that for a while, but I think they're showing up to the world. Um, and then you know, of our coverage, a lot of companies report this upcoming week, this past week, it was really just Lockheed Martin. Uh, and we can talk about that in a minute, but they were down about 2% on their, on their earnings, uh, which was kind of surprising because their earnings are actually pretty good.
0: Um, just uh, a brief macro point, right? I mean, the street has a tendency sometimes of Either overreacting to what happens in Washington or underreacting, we're now looking at about an 880 billion dollar. Right, I mean, assuming this is the number we we get to for defense, uh, that number is well north of a trillion dollars. If you add uh, the nuclear enterprise to it, uh, that falls under the Department of Energy's purview at a time when we are trying to modernize our nuclear forces, uh, as well as the Department of Homeland Security and intelligence agencies. Right, I mean, it's well north of a trillion dollars. our investors? adequately valuing where we are on national security at large?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think so, right? I think, you know, there, there, given all the kind of drama on, on the Hill and everything that's been going on, um, that's been kind of lost on investors. I mean, $880 billion is a it, is, is a great number. Uh, I've had some investors mention to me, uh, hey, you know what, outlays are starting to go up. Yeah, n- n- no kidding, right? I mean, there's been a lot of orders for stuff. Outlays are going to continue to go up. Um, so you know maybe we'll start to see that, and I think that was part of the surprise with you know Lockheed this this quarter. They you know the their numbers were good, the stock was down, but the you know the setup for for defense is actually uh, looking much better. If you look at the broader economy, you know it it's pretty mellow right now. I mean the, the ten year has been sitting just under four percent now for you know weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, the VIX is very low at thirteen. Um, You know, Brent crude at eighty one, WTI at seventy seven. They've been bouncing around that range for a while. So, you know, the market is, you know, broadly pretty pretty calm. Um, I think as we get through this next earning report, through this next week, uh, we might see some changes about how people think about defense. And then, the one thing I might add, uh, defense stocks typically during presidential election years do very well. Um, I didn't get the exact numbers for this, but approximately. If you if you look at how defense stocks do, and this is you know going back looking at about forty years worth of data, kind of independent of who's seen as you know kind of in the lead or so on and so forth, about eighty percent of the time defense stocks outperform the broader market during presidential election years, and they do it meaningfully, you know, um, by something like a thousand basis points. So, um, if you look at kind of the setup for defense in the next year as we. Move into the second half of the year, which everybody starts to think about right We're in the middle of the year. Um, you know, the setup for defense into next year, given that backdrop, 880 billion, well over a trillion, and you add in everything, it, it looks pretty good.
0: Um, speaking uh, of something which is looking uh, better, um, it was uh, very uh, interesting, uh, Sash, to spend a week and a half in the UK. A lot of trepidations about the future of the National Health Service on the 75th anniversary of what has been um, sort of a real uh, hallmark, landmark system that others uh, around the world have emulated. A lot of other political questions, right? This sense that we're somehow, uh, you know, Britain is entering sort of a post-World War II uh, almost period, right? I mean, which was a very challenging period. That said, inflation uh, is down. Um, The defense spending outlook uh, should remain positive. The government has said 2.5%. Uh, for defense, which is up from two percent, the UK is spending. You know, and, and a lot of folks, whether in Parliament or elsewhere, were telling me, like, "Well, we'll see whether or not." You know, we don't. We know we have to spend more on defense, but we don't know what else we're going to have to spend on. From your standpoint, the inflation impact and how that impacted the entire group uh, in uh, trading and what the dynamics were beyond uh, earnings, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, well,
3: look, inflation. First of all, um, UK inflation uh, last month was seven point nine percent. That was um, significantly better than the consensus, which was 8.2%, and that's down from 11% uh, in June. So UK, I mean, I, the best way this was described to me was the UK has gone, in inflation terms, from being a basket case to just being sort of bad. But remember, there are some European countries. I think Spain is down about 5% now. So um, uh, you know, there's still a long way to go. But inflation was so high that it was start starting to threaten. A lot of other government spending simply because uh um paying for paying for our debt was beginning to cost a lot, but also there were and still are inflationary pay rises going through. And whenever you get an inflationary pay rise or you know a pay rise that is somewhere around the rate of inflation, that tends to come out of capital budgets elsewhere, and that's the sort of thing that really hurts uh defense. So I think you know, inflation coming down, um, and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has. Uh, He set his target of it halving, so down to 6.5% or thereabouts uh, by next year. If if the government can do that, if the Bank of England can do that, that takes the UK back to a position where government can can make relatively rational spending decisions rather than panicking defence decisions, spending decisions. Um, I didn't think we're going to see an official increase in the uh, target for defence spending before the next election. Um, Labour doesn't want to make any Um, unfunded uh, decisions at all and frankly at the moment neither do the Conservatives but you're absolutely right there is a a tacit consensus that spending is going to have to rise. The question and it was not answered with the uh, refresh of the command white paper which was gibberish but the question really is you know where uh, and how and I think you know we're going to need a a new defence secretary and and a you know arguably a new government before we get some real real clarity on that, but you know, inflation coming down is definitely a good thing. Um,
0: and and uh, talk uh, briefly about the command uh, white paper. Um, we discussed it uh, in sort of rough terms on uh, last week on expectations, but it was announced after we had the conversation the government obviously turning it or, or billing it as something really, really significant and very important. Um, the right uh, Armed Forces Minister uh, James Heapy uh, told the RAF uh, uh, Global Air and Space Chiefs Conference uh, that it, there would be a lot of investment in the mundane, which is key uh, to uh, defense. What did you like? What did you not like in what you saw?
3: I didn't like any of it. I thought it was gibberish. It could have been better written by chat GPT um it didn't uh, address the key issues it tended to skirt by them um about the only thing that i liked about the spin that the government put on it um after its publication was that government acknowledged that a huge amount has to be put into stocks just rebuilding rebuilding the stocks that we've run down either over the last 25 years or actually even worse over the last 15 months giving stuff to to ukraine but there were there haven't been hard numbers put on that. There's been a suggestion that around two and a half billion will be spent on stocks. To put that into perspective, though, that's the amount that Germany is spending on tank ammunition alone, not artillery ammunition, not any other ammunition, just tank ammunition. So two and a half billion doesn't go very far when each bang is 5,000 euros. Um,
0: I want to get to earnings in a minute. Richard, you've been very patient, and I want to get your sense uh, on uh, the United uh, Pilots uh, deal. La- last week when we were taping from uh, the UK, Ron's flight was being canceled literally while we were uh, recording the program and, and it took a lot of effort. Uh, fortunately, he's global services uh, and United managed to get him home via you know, Chicago over to Newark. I think three of six flights, uh, uh, Newark bound flights were canceled. We have had spates of massive cancellations a couple of weeks earlier. The airline had said, you know, it's about air traffic controllers, uh, MRO issues. There was another wave the Friday before, uh, last, uh, when, uh, you know, when I was flying out to Dulles and the airplane was delayed because they couldn't get, you know, there were so many flights that were canceled the preceding Friday, uh, everybody was trying to get home by hook or by, by crook. Um, and you know, on top of that, you know, hearing that the, you know, the, the, um, the delay in negotiations was, was pilots being playing a role in these cancellations uh, ultimately to try to get a better deal. There are a lot of parallels between what hap- what's happened with United and what we saw with Spirit uh, and its workforce and what it means for American and, and Delta and others. Talk to us a little bit about some of the mechanics here and what do you think it means for the broader air travel market? Because I think everybody, whether they're flying at the front of the cabin or in the back of the cabin are noticing flights are a lot more expensive than they were and they're likely to keep going up for a whole variety of reasons in part because you might be paying your pilots and and, and flight attendants and and ground maintenance personnel more walk us through
2: yeah, you know, mechanics certainly is the right word. There's a lot of uh, moving parts and gears and whatever else. But, uh, you know, we're coming to quantify the impact of labor inflation in the aviation business. Uh, it's becoming incredibly obvious that it is it is 35 to 40 percent over the next four years. You know, you talk about the commonality with the spirit agreement that, of course, you know, it was in that zone. Thirty six percent, I believe the new United agreement, 34 to 41 percent. They're the last of the big three. uh. Mainline carriers in the U.S. to come up with uh, a labor agreement. All the others have been. This is an incredible coincidence between 35 and 40 percent. I mean, that's the new cost of labor. It's gone up over the next four years, 35 to 40 percent. Now, obviously, that all sounds wonderful. We've de-risked the situation, and as you, you know, clearly point out, there probably has been some risk introduced into United operations, or might well have been as a consequence of uh, United pilots' dissatisfaction. But that's all been de-risked. That's the good news. Um, Maybe not so good news. It it really depends now. Everyone's going to have to go through their contracts and see, okay, to what extent do our pass-through mechanisms allow us to cover that additional cost? Uh, With airlines, it's relatively straightforward. You charge people more for tickets. Now, that gets into the tricky question of elasticity of demand. Will the upturn hold up? With higher ticket prices. We don't know. Nobody knows, right? And of course it depends on broader economic issues, consumer psychology, so many other things. There's no right answer. We're just gonna have to, you know, cross our fingers. In terms of manufacturing stuff, oh boy, you know, it becomes very obvious that again it comes down to what you can pass through. And can Boeing you know, pass through? Yeah, they 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 probably can pass through higher costs to. The airlines, not always, but some of the time, some of the costs. Can their suppliers? Well, this gets into the tricky question of to what extent the supplier costs are supplier problems and to what extent they're Boeing's problems. Spirit's the best illustration of that. There are no longer any spirit problems. It's all Boeing's problem, right? So I think there are a lot of big questions introduced, but at least we know the numbers we're dealing with. For everybody, it's 35 to 40%. Uh,
0: Ron and uh, Sash, any any sense on how uh, Ron sort of, you know, broader comments, Sash, how this affects uh, European airspace, right? Because we talked about, you know, even the global implications of the Spirit deal and what does it mean, right? So if all of a sudden the big three American airlines are paying more money, mm, you know, Air France pilots and BA pilots uh, might think the same thing. Go
1: ahead, Ron. Well, I mean, it's sort of the obvious thing. And I think, you know, Richard was alluding to this, Um, you know, the proclivity to fly is, I mean, there's a there's a price sensitivity to it and you know how much of a, you know, uh, increase in prices will the, will the market bear? Um, you know we'll see. Uh, I think another thing to focus on here is you, you had the you labor deal uh, at Spirit. Uh, the Boeing has a similar negotiation with the IAM next year. You know how's that going to go? Um, you know by our estimate, you know, Boeing employees have actually done better relative to the aerospace industry than Spirit employees did. Um, so maybe that'll go easier for Boeing, um, but we'll see, right? I mean, it's a labor negotiation uh, and then other suppliers are going to have to deal with this, right? So, you know, to Richard's initial point, you know, we're starting to see labor inflation in our industry. Um, um, it's just an, an incontrovertible fact. Um, we'll see what that does for, you know, margins across the industry. Uh, you know, the, the airlines so far have been faring pretty well. well. We'll we'll see how that goes and then we'll see how it it, it goes through the supply chain. Uh, for you know, all the component suppliers. Uh, something definitely to watch. But I think the key watch item now is Boeing's negotiation next year with the IAM.
0: And any expectations on what that's going to look like at this point?
1: No, I, I really don't, right. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that it goes it goes well. Um, you do have you know, some precedent set uh, in Wichita, right? So there's going to be some lessons learned there. And then, like I mentioned before, when you do compare how Boeing employees have been paid in the Puget Sound region relative to um, employees in in Wichita, they have done better, right? So um, there, there might be less angst uh, in in the you know, how can I say it at the negotiating table relative to what there were, you know, in in Wichita. And remember, part of the reason Spirit was separated off of Boeing way back when was to separate remember the the IAM in Wichita and the IAM in Seattle they were both IAM 751 so it was the same negotiating group it was the same pay rate same everything um, and then after the deal it got split so it's not surprising that the employees in Wichita fared worse because initially that was part of the strategy of the whole thing why they did it in the first place. Uh,
0: in in Indeed. Sash uh, impact on European aerospace before we move on? I think on European
3: aerospace not very much. Um, European aerospace Um, manufacturers are in general settling around the five to six percent annual level although there have been some significant um, one-off payments for cost of living particularly in Germany. Uh, Germany has, I think has has been very very good at uh, you know looking at the the cost of living problems at the moment as being a one-off cost and a lot of firms have been paying uh, a thousand euros or thereabouts as a uh, effectively as a as a single payment in addition to the annual payments. Um, airline costs. Look, it's possible that that the United uh, numbers will uh, eventually come over to the three big European carriers, but they've got to be very very careful because, um, I you know, d- despite everybody's best efforts, there is still a very very healthy airline uh, market in Europe, and if the major carriers settle for. Uh, at very, very high levels for, for pilots, um, the low-cost carriers, the Ryanairs, Whiz, EasyJet, are going to come in and eat their lunch, dinner, and then tomorrow's breakfast as well. Uh, and they, they won't be able to afford that. So I, I actually suspect that this will not be as contagious as the indirect effects of uh, the Spirit deal. Um,
0: by the way, I, I think it's illustrative that um, with each one of these uh, broader... Uh, delays, cancellations, and the like, the number of people I know who pay historically have paid, you know, our our front cabin people are beginning to take other airlines in order to cross the Atlantic. And I think that that's uh, interesting, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, flying the Icelandic carriers or whatever, they're like, look, it's just a lot cheaper. And it's almost like, uh, could I afford it? Yeah, but on moral grounds, I'm kind of not. And I think that that's kind of interesting that you're getting that kind of a uh, feedback and pushback uh, as, as you know, the the rates uh, really go up and up. Um, just a quick word from our sponsors, HII. Sponsors are Global Coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors are Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors are Command and Control Coverage, and GE Aerospace. Sponsors are Air and Naval Coverage. R- Richard, is there anything you want to add uh, after my little uh, Icelandic uh, soliloquy?
2: You know, it sounds... Did right. I think there's almost a psychological barrier for front of cabin folks in that uh, that, you know, five figure, bed. you know, people are used to saying, oh, uh, seven, eight thousand for transatlantic business class. Fine. But you're starting to see 10, 11. And I can't help but wonder whether there isn't some sort of. You know, trigger mechanism that people do consider other options, or simply bite the bullet and do premium economy. Even though that someone's going to pay, they simply just can't justify it. I think I might just be in that heading in certain situations.
0: Um, I I would uh, point out what I also think it's interesting, Ron. It's being reflected in the travel policies by some airlines, uh, by by some even major contractors. They're saying now it's like you know flights above ten hours. Uh, in in order to be able to fly front of cabin. And so, you know, you wonder how tenable this strategy is when, you know, you've shifted so many seats to the front of the airplane with people who you assumed are going to pay no matter what. And now even those people are saying, "Eh, this is getting to a point where I'm not going to travel no matter what. And by the way, when you talk about premium economy, there are a lot of people who will pay $2,500 for that seat. But once it goes north of $4,400 for that seat, go, I'm not going to do that. So it was interesting at Riyadh, uh, and in my time in London, the sheer number of people whose companies have instituted travel policies—you're flying in the back of the airplane. We all fly the back of the airplane. If you can upgrade on your points and miles, go right ahead. We're not going to pay for it. Any, anything you want to add, Ron?
1: Yeah, and I think that's you know something we're seeing across industries, you know, even in you know our, my industry, you know at the you know the big, big banks. I mean, there's a real focus on cost right now. Um, you know, without getting in the details. Um, we're dealing with kind of uh, a similar situation. So I don't think that's just, you know, know, the A&D industry. I think we're seeing that across industries as companies look at, you know, efficiencies and, you know, travel and entertainment costs and so on and so forth. And particularly if you baseline, and and many companies I think did this, if you baseline your travel budgets and to 2019 levels, um, there's a heck of a lot of inflation and travel on you know, airfares and hotels, don't forget about hotels. Hotels have gone up a lot too, um, right? Versus 2019, so relative to a 2019 bar, um, you're way up, right? So, um, what I think you 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 focus are focusing on, I think, correct, right? I mean, it's, you're going to see that I, I think across industries, um, un, until something were to change, the economy were to get really really robust, um, or or whatever. But I mean. I, you know, spending, you know, north of, you know, $10,000 to go on a transatlantic trip, I think to almost any company, that's just a lot of dough. I mean, that was, that's almost, you know, what was, you know, Pacific kind of fares. Right.
0: It's going to be interesting to see how much money, right? I mean, having reconfigured the cabin for these vast business and first-class sections, then sort of economy, you know, premium economy, right? Four rows, maybe, you know, go across the airplane times six. Uh, And then, you know, a smaller back of this. you've structured the whole thing to drive all the prices up, right? Uh, And, and accommodate more people who will spend more, give them a little bit of a rub, you know, bumper option, then have sort of you know, coach plus, and then very few coach seats. You've structured the whole thing to sort of drive this, and then you're going to have to change planes configurations, which is going to cost money also. It's interesting where they drop that premium economy bulkhead. You can't open two of the overhead door uh, overhead bins, uh, or, or even more than two, given how they've uh, set it up. Just a real, a real quick, uh, Sash, any last thoughts on this before we move to defense?
3: Well, Jesse, it was very interesting. Um, at the Airbus Capital Markets Day, and this was last November, um, uh, and we went around their um, cabin interiors centre, and the Airbus people were pretty open. I mean, they said that a lot of airlines now see their premium economy as being equivalent in class to the old club business, um, and that business class has become the new first class, and that a lot of airlines outside the US don't have a first class section anymore. They're, so club uh, club business is uh, as good as as good as you get, and very very good indeed. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's the squeeze at the back end of the aircraft where airlines would be very happy not to you know not to be able to fly uh, e- economy because they, they make the least amount of money on the economy seats. that's that's actually what really hurts in terms of capacity. I wonder how much airlines can continue to squeeze this particular lemon personally. Uh,
0: yes, at, at some point, uh, it will not give you any, uh, any more uh, juice. All right. Uh, Ron, walk us through U.S. earnings, right? I mean, the big uh, story was Lockheed Martin. Uh, walk us through what uh, management had to say and how they performed. And you said uh, the market was not particularly enthusiastic about what it earned.
3: Yeah, I mean,
1: they have good sales growth in the quarter. Um, you know, I think if there was any surprise in the quarter, and this would have been a surprise to folks that really weren't paying attention, um, was on the, you know, the, the Block 3 upgrade to F-35. They're not going to deliver those aircraft until... Um, they demonstrate that the block three is sort of bulletproof and really working. Um, that shifts some cash flow from this year and next year, but doesn't change the magnitude of the cash flow. It just kind of shifts it from one year to the next. Um, their, you know, their, their um, the missile and fire control business had a book to bill of three point three. That's just, you know, a humongous number. I mean, defense contractors don't do that. It's usually, like, what one point two. <laughs> it's a really good book to bill. Um, so, you know, the book to bills were good. You know, the, the numbers were broadly good. Um, but I think it's just a, a broader thing where right now there's a fair amount of um, investor apathy uh, on the defense space, not necessarily um, kind of, uh, you know, disliking defense, but just just sort of ap- apathy and some rotation in the market and had some really weird trading days during the week, you know, weird meaning, you know, defense stocks were up and so were the SPACs and the SPACs are typically, you know, kind of you know seen as more uh kind of risky assets up you know with with stocks that generally aren't and um so there was just a lot of things bouncing around during the week uh and I think a lot of that just has to do with you know midsummer lower volumes this upcoming week is a gigantic earnings week and not just for aerospace and defense but across the entire industrial complex and uh, complex and most of the market so I think next week we'll have a lot to talk about in terms of you know expectations from companies on you know what they're going to see in the second half of the year you know both in our our little you know a and D microcosm, but more broadly on you know the broader industrial universe and just you know kind of the you know the broader market, you know the consumer and so on and so forth. So I think this is most likely going to be a very important week because we have so many earnings this week across the market.
0: and and any uh, expectations in terms of how the group is going to perform?
1: I mean, I, I really I really wish I could tell you. Um, I think um, I, I you know from what if you read the tea leaves, on um, what Lockheed said most likely, um, you'll probably see pretty good backlog build at most of the defense contractors. Um, I would imagine you know, the, you know, the defense numbers will be probably pretty good. Um, I don't know if the market's going to care, right, but we'll, but we'll see. Right. And then on commercial aerospace, we know what Boeing and Airbus delivered. so that's that's not a big surprise, but you know, Boeing defense they'll be, you know all eyes on that and Boeing cash flow folks will be looking at. Uh, and then you know the other question is on the aftermarket, when you look at maintenance repair and overhaul spare parts you know how how is the supply chain doing is supply the supply chain passing through inflation we know they are how much you know you know how is pricing how is volume all that kind of stuff uh, and i would imagine it's going to be the numbers are gonna be pretty good um, at least that seems to be what investors are, are expecting
0: uh sash uh walk us through babcock Dassault, uh Talis, saab uh, among the companies, uh, the big ones to report, a lot of good notes uh on your part. Walk us through, you know, how each of them performed and why, right? Started off with Babcock, given the company uh is a terrific company, but it has also experienced its own share of challenges.
3: Yeah. Well, um, look, the share price uh reaction um tells the story. Babcock shares were up one quarter uh last week. Not one quarter of a percent, one quarter, 25%. Uh sorry. You know, they started, they, they started, or they ended the week before um, at uh, about so just under three pounds, and they ended um, uh, the week just gone at three pounds eighty. It was an absolutely incredible uh, performance in that respect. Why the num- the numbers themselves were good, the cash flow was better. One of the criticisms about corporate, war, one of the concerns has been that it had a strained balance sheet, it might have to do quite a big recapitalization. I don't think anybody seriously believes that now. They've actually got their net debt uh, down to about 1.1 times EBITDA. That's incredibly comfy, Uh, well inside covenants. Um, They seem to have dealt with the Type 31 uh, frigate program uh, problem as well as they could do. I mean, nobody should be surprised. Fixed price contracts, fixed price defense contract has an overrun. Dog bites man. Um, But I think they have learned a huge number of lessons about that. They've actually gone into a a much more mature um, level of arbitration with the UK Ministry of Defence, and I think I would have expected three months ago. Um, you know, both sides accept they've now got to get this uh, this program right. Um, I suspect that ultimately there will be you know, a deal which includes fitting the Type Thirty One frigates with the uh, Mark Forty One vertical launch systems, and that will sort of cover a lot of the costs that have been that have been incurred uh, recently. But that that's our personal view. But overall. Investors came out of looking at the Babcock numbers, thinking it's in way better financial uh, condition than we thought. It's actually growing a bit faster than we thought. They're starting to announce contracts now related to Ukraine. They're overhauling a lot of military vehicles uh, that the UK is donating and then get sent to Ukraine. But they're actually now looking at setting up a complete MRO business in Ukraine or or near Ukraine, it's probably a bit safer if you do it somewhere in Poland. Let's be honest, um, so that they can support other countries' vehicles as well, because a lot of smaller countries in Europe don't have the ability to deploy forward and provide the the level of overhaul that probably the Ukrainians are going to need. Um, it was a you know it was a really encouraging uh, set of figures for a truck stock that's gone nowhere uh, in the in in the last couple of years and was down heavily on a sort of five year view. Um, that was the best performer of the week. Compare that with Dassault Aviation, though. Um, Dassault was down eight percent on the week. Um, why? Because they just didn't deliver very much, and they didn't get very many orders either. I mean, is, is the hmm. the simple story. Uh, you know, if you look at the first half of the year, um, uh, in, you know, in terms of uh, orders, they had twelve Falcons ordered. Well, that that's not going to butter butter many parsnips. Um The Falcon business is just is going through. You know, they've said demand has definitely gone down again no more Rafales ordered, um, and deliveries, um, four Rafales, to each for export in France and nine Falcons. This is a business that's really at a cyclical low point. Now, look three, four years forward, they're going to be delivering 36 to 40 Rafales a year. So, um, you know, closer to 20 uh, per half year than the four they they delivered this half year. And the Falcon business should should be picking up by then as well. But I think Investors were just taken aback by quite how low uh, this otherwise fairly well uh, flagged um, uh, dip uh, is, how little activity there was relatively. Dassault is playing a much longer term game. We should come back and talk about um, uh, France and Germany and SCAF uh, later. But this also fed through, I think, a little bit to Thales. I mean, Thales' shares were down 3% on on the week. Their results were better than Dassault's objectively. But... Management on the call, frankly, were just a bit bit down in the mouth. You didn't get the feeling they were, they were feeling that great about near-term prospects. I continue to be really surprised that Thales management managed to do an hour, hour and a quarter's call on their results and not mention Ukraine once. Um, hmm. it, I think they are tied up in the complexities of French foreign policy, uh, which is to try to be slightly more, and I'm using the term with very, very big quotes here, Balanced towards Russia, I don't think that does France any credit personally. Um, but I think it—you know—it means that Thales are rather constrained in what they can say, and I think they just don't feel they're getting quite as much of the the big European upturn as uh, as they would like at the moment. But it was a remarkably downbeat um, uh, call. By contrast, SAB was pretty good. SAB was up eight percent on the day and then gave it all uh, all back uh, two, dra- two trading days later. Um, uh, it's a very, very volatile share, but booked a bill of 1.15. That's nowhere near as good as Lockheed Martin, missile and fire controls business, clearly. But that, you know, that this is still a business that's growing its backlog and very much expanding margins. So that was a, you know, that was a relief to investors.
0: Um, I, I would just point out, I think that there's a disconnect between what Talos leadership uh, is saying and avoiding Ukraine and the reality. After having spent a week uh, in more than a week in Paris and talking to uh, senior leaders that there has really been a shift uh, in the way uh, that Paris is looking at this, including the openness with which um, Macron is approaching bringing Ukraine, for example, into the EU uh, and expanding the EU uh, sort of more broadly, which is something historically France hasn't done. So as much as there's been a Titan vendor in Germany, there appears to be a very, very palpable shift in Paris, even if that shift is uh, the anti-Russian shift that's happened is really being uh, recognized, right? I mean, it's it's sort of, at this point, the, the bigger concern are Macron's problematic statements towards China uh, rather uh, necessarily. So I think that it's interesting that, you know, perhaps Talas is lagging a little bit uh, in in terms of how it's uh, viewing this, then, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to me.
3: Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's a, I think that's, you know, very, very perceptive. And, you know, you and I spoke to very different people in Paris and, and thereafter. So I think, you know, what we're getting is some, some incredibly useful points to to triangulate from. Um, and it's, it wouldn't be impossible for, a, you know, for a company to, to have a lagged um, uh, level of feedback compared to what's going on at sort of the leading edge of, of government thought. Uh, but they do themselves a lot of credit as a management if they, you know, frankly, they just said, look, there is a war in Europe. It is, In human terms, in moral terms, deeply regrettable. But we're a defense company. This has to be good for what we do, because, you know, like every other defense company in the last 15 years, um, they've had people saying, you know, defense is bad. Don't buy the stock. Well, that certainly doesn't apply now.
0: Uh, and and we'll uh, get to uh, the entire tempest uh, SCAF issue in a second. Richard, hold on one second. Just uh, a reminder to the audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Canvas Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HiI and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own uh, JJ uh, Gertler. Um, Richard. Uh, kind of your your sense on on some of the figures that we've seen from the European mm-hmm. companies and and the Dassault, uh bit uh, of this uh, equation, and then I'm going to have you start off uh, sort of the German scaff, uh, uh, you know the, the German comments uh, about Saudi Arabia uh, in a minute, but just you know sort of on the whole earnings package. And by the way, Sash, you know that that's my long running line, right? Dog bites man story, program on budget and you know below cost uh, and delivered on schedule. That's the, you know, man bites dog story. <laughs> the, the, the dog bites man story is, yeah, we're behind schedule and over budget. You know, that, that's a nice that, <laughs> l- little bit less newsworthy. Go ahead, uh, Richard.
2: Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm fascinated by the SO numbers and in, in a lot of ways, it, it almost looks like sort of a reducto ad absurdum version of what's going on in Fort Worth. You know, you've got, uh, the ambitious goal of, uh, 156 where the market really wants it to be 180 or 200 you know last year they did 140 I believe 141 right around there this year it's going to be somewhat short of that but at least we're talking significant numbers um four <laughs> four Rafaels in the first half that that's uh that's adorable that's like macy's window and christmas happy little you know leprechauns working on train tracks sort of numbers um that's adorable. Not exactly I've evidence. never
0: heard uh, fighter production named as. Oh, that's adorable.
2: I, I mean, this is this is artisanal boulangerie sort of territory. You know, right. we've we've created the perfect puff pastry. It 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 shouldn't look like this, and the whole. You know, uh, no orders. I don't understand that. They've been on a tear with orders. They're doing great. They have a fantastic backlog. And of course, as we discussed last week, there's the very strong likelihood of the Indian Navy coming through. And then probably the Indian Air Force with more. You know, the production numbers should more look more like, well, what SAS just said, you know, ultimately 35 to 40 a year at least. OK, we're still a far cry from Fort Worth's 156 goal. But uh, four, <laughs> that is just really weird. The business jet side is a little more disturbing because, you know, they're purely they're the only pure play top half business jet provider um the business jet market had been doing really well but now apparently is perhaps softening of it we don't know how much um we don't know to what extent we'll see over capacity given all the model introductions at the top end with Gulfstream and Bombardier so I understand that uh, I understand the concern there and and here again as Sash said you know the numbers have been uh a lot smaller than expected you know they basically did 41, I believe, last year, and uh, they delivered nine in the first six months. So I, I think there are big questions that should be asked and are being asked. And uh, you know, <laughs> it's all a bit strange, given the circumstances, especially, yes, indeed, Ukraine.
0: The sense that I had coming out of the Paris Air show was that there was going to be an increase in production rate. Is this, and I'm, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. Right, sort of a yeah. short term decline to ramp up longer term production because I think the company recognizes it's, it's got a product that's selling on the international market, it's the only other jet that's selling aside from the F 35. Um, you know, much much to Saab's sadness, um, is this a little bit of investment to get
2: production rolling. Um, it might be, you know, uh, Dassault executives were pretty upfront, uh, recently saying uh, it's not just us. And this gets into a much bigger conversation. You know, Dassault is part of the vertically integrated French combat aircraft machine. You know, I mean, two things Dassault doesn't do very much. uh, Joint ventures with other people, you know, classic (laughs) Franco-French joint ventures, Dassault, working with Dassault. uh, And the stuff it does outsource, that is to say, the stuff that gets sourced for all the usual components and technologies, incredibly vertically French, far more than the F-35, far more than any other combat aircraft on the planet, except, for, of course, stuff made in Russia, uh, which means you might just be running into bandwidth constraints, not just at uh, Safran and Thales and their various, very specific uh, product lines, you know, M88 engines and, and what RBE radars and whatever else, EW systems, but a notch down. You dig below you know, saffron talas and, and the usual folks, and, and you get to, uh, well, you know, you get to Latico Airs and whoever else, and, and machine shops that simply might not have the capacity. So, yes, absolutely, investment for the future needed. To what extent will France uh, just, you know, be disadvantaged because of its vertical approach to its defense uh, base?
0: Sash, maybe you know, either if you have any, any point you want to add to that, because I think it's a good opportunity to get you uh, in this and then uh, pave us into uh, the German comments about Saudi Arabia, right? I mean, whether in Paris or in London, um, there were, you know, that the Saudi Arabia still is uh, challenging a country that, in many respects, is turning a corner, but still uh, some of, um, you know, beyond the Jamal Khashoggi. Um, right, this sort of fence straddling the Saudis are doing cozying up to the Russians cozying up to the Chinese in order to deliver everybody's messages, and then that suddenly starts becoming very problematic when everybody is trying to court their participation on a combat aircraft program, and also trying to understand what is it they could or could not contribute, uh, given that you have, you know, sort of first rate industrial powers, sort of a little bit on uh, Dassault's plight, uh, Ron, if you want to jump in here as well, happy to have you on, and then let's uh, shift the, the discussion um, to the possible export control implications uh, of this and how problematic some of the comments coming out of Berlin would be, for example, for Paris.
3: Yeah, look, I've, I've got very little about uh, Richard's excellent comments. I mean, he's absolutely right. You know, France in general, but uh, Dassault in particular, is more vertically integrated. And actually, it's not even the tier twos. It's the tiers threes, fours, fives. That so There's a long um, line of very, very small uh, subcontractors, which... You know, for very, very uh, admirable reasons, um, are, are supported in French industry. And some of them uh, get bigger and, and uh, even more you know, more, more successful. But a lot of them have just not got the elasticity to be able to increase uh, production. And no French company wants to push them to increase production in case you push them over the edge by mistake. And Dassault's has always been very clear. It takes a minimum of three years to build um, a Rafale whether we like it or not, that's how long it takes from order received to aircraft delivered out of, uh, out of the door. Um, and if you are a new customer, i.e. you have never been a DASO customer before, it's close to four years because it just takes longer to do the, the documentation and the training and, 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 and everything else. So I, I actually don't worry too much about Dasso's ramp from here, but I was taken aback by quite how low the, the, uh, the trough was. Um, so you know, back to Germany and uh, and Eurofighter, but more broadly, Skaff. Um, uh, Chancellor Scholz, uh, you know, was uh, was asked a question about arms exports to Saudi Arabia, and, and basically said, Eurofighters are not going to be exported to Saudi Arabia, um, you know, on his watch or anybody else in Berlin's watch. Um, it was a very, very, uh, it was a very hard comment to make, you um, it was a very difficult comment to make. I don't think it will have done Germany or German industry any good at all. Um, he can clearly you know, veto a Eurofighter uh, export, but by doing so, he is frightening the hell out of Paris, because um, if he can veto a Eurofighter um, uh, export to Saudi Arabia, he can he then has, and Germany then has the same powers over SCAF, uh, FCAS, you know, as and when that programme finally comes online. And the French take the, the absolutely categor- categoric view. SCAF is being designed for use by France, but also Germany and Spain, and for export. And, you know, domestic uh, supply and exports are, are absolutely indivisible. Um, I think this is pushing um, SCAF closer and closer to failure. Um, what's fascinating is that 40-odd no, years ago, there was an agreement called the schmidt debrey Pact um, between France and Germany, and it concerned helicopters and missiles at that time, because that's where the big uh, collaborations were between the two countries, which said, we each agree, the two countries, that an export approved by one will be approved by the other. Um, and Schultz has just, you know, torn that up. And it seems to me that what is going to be needed by whoever is lucky enough, I use the term, Uh, advisedly, you know, to be Germany's partner in uh, defense programs is going to be something that is an agreement, but is a treaty. Because if a German chancellor or the Bundestag think that they can veto an export that another European country of similar standards in terms of or standing in terms of, you know, uh, democracy and so forth, thinks is an acceptable uh, export, Nobody's going to want to be Germany's par- uh, partner on that, and I think that Germany could end up just, you know, being left out rather than in the cold on this, and that would be disastrous for German industry. Nobody should be in any any doubts about that. I got the clear impression at the Paris Air Show that Dassault would be very happy if SCAF got delayed into well into the twenty forties, and if Germany walks or if Germany, you know, sort of vanishes from it, from their point of view, so much the better. They can manage without Germany. Germany can't manage uh, without them.
0: Ron, any uh, uh, contribution you have to this uh, discussion before um, I move it uh, just before we end really briefly to uh, industrial production?
1: Um, not, not a heck of a lot to add from a, from a. US perspective. No.
0: Uh, let me start with you then. The, the Russian the Ukrainians, the the Russians in the wake of the grain deal are bombarding uh, Odessa. It's been a focus. Uh, it is the nation's uh, seaborne lifeline and can't move grain. Um, you know, moving grain by rail is a much slower proposition than filling up a whole bunch of ships and sailing them around the world. On the, on the Friday podcast, we talked about how this strategy is potentially problematic. But at the end of the day, I go back to what uh, the Royal United Services Institute's Justin Bronx said, if your adversary says they want to destroy Ukraine as a, as a nation state, you have to just believe them. And it's a long term project and Putin is waiting for us to both either run out of arms or just run out of patience or ideally uh, both. Um, the Ukrainians are shooting down everything they can. All the Shaheds that the Russians are, are sending, uh, Odessa's way or Kiev's way or Lviv's way, uh, they are downing. The trouble is we are running out of patriots. We're running out of iris tees. Uh, and, and the Russians haven't even inaugurated, uh, although I will check on the status of this on tomorrow's program with Sam Bendett, Uh, of uh, the Center for Naval Analyses, they're not, they're going to inaugurate their Shahed factory and they're going to be producing this. I mean, the the Russians have shifted to a war economy, uh, building more munitions, uh, even with Western electronics. Ron, how quickly are we moving on the higher end systems, right? I mean, the artillery shells we've put under contract, GMLRS we've put under contract, those aren't spooling up until next year. We're giving cluster munitions to the Ukrainians because we're running out of artillery shells ourselves. Where are we on moving the needle on air and missile defenses? Because as we've put some of these systems back in production, we're not ready at we're not at three shifts. We're reluctant to reduce our stocks in certain parts of the world. I mean, do the do the Russians just out bombard the Ukrainians?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I can't really speak to what the Russians will do, but I can I can tell you if you look at our industry, they're getting orders now and they're you know beginning know to to ramp but it it takes time to get that flywheel going um you know it's just you know as an outsider looking in it it doesn't seem like there's been at least initially um a heck of a lot of urgency to get that flywheel moving you know what i mean um but but it seems like it's picking up now but you're you're exactly right i mean um a, a lot of the orders that are happening now you probably won't see them um you know get delivered for you know, six to nine months. So it's going to take take time for that to happen. Um, in, in earnest, we saw order activity pick up uh, probably a quarter to go, right? Uh, and we'll start to see that stuff uh, being shipped uh, in the fourth quarter of this year. So we'll start to see some pickup from some of the early orders, but kind of the, 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 the bigger backlog builds and so on and so forth, I expect to see um, on the relevant stuff, you know, this quarter or next quarter, which means you're not going to see that stuff probably till the middle of next year.
0: Sash, your, your sense on how this is playing out and then maybe uh, Richard, you can bring us
3: uh, over uh, the finish line. I think it's very difficult for the Ukrainians to decide that there is an acceptable level of damage that they will uh, absorb from Russian missile and, uh, and, and drone attacks. I think, in fact, I think it, that's, it's not fair on us to expect them to, to make that call. Um, And absolutely right. You know, uh, know, I think the surprise of one of the surprises of the war has been how incredibly effective Western-supplied surface-to-air missiles uh, or missile systems are. But yeah, they're using these things uh, like they're getting out of fashion, and um, they're they're draining us down. We, the West, and that's clear. You know, there's a huge number of countries involved, and they all have different nuanced policies, but are going to have to make a series of Decisions about how much risk we take, how much we are prepared to continue to supply out of our own stocks rather than out of new build production over the next probably 15 months uh, until production can really uh, can really ramp up. Patriot is probably the probably the the most complex of the air defense missile systems to uh, to build, um, but uh, you know NASAMS uh, Sam T. Are not far behind in terms of the um, the lead times required for that, and I think you know, can we keep on supplying? Should we keep on supplying? Will we? Those are going to be the questions that actually determine um, how much damage is, uh, Ukraine incurs, and you know whether they think that's acceptable, and, and whether we do or not. I mean, the, the irony is that Russian use of hypersonic missiles, Kinzhal, is incredibly counterproductive for them. I mean, they fire twenty million dollar missile off and um it, it delivers a smallish bang that kills some civilians but it doesn't actually do a strategic have a strategic impact whereas uh shahed drones which are you know, probably a high five finger number to produce because they're really really simple um kill nearly as many people and have a much greater impact in terms of the damage that that, that they are imposing on the ukrainian economy um so uh, you know we have to we have to decide how much we're prepared to stop those uh and i think it will require us to to take much more risks than we're prepared to do but i think you know um uh, the argument that the orders are coming in now but it's a flywheel that takes a long time to, to to get going that's something which is very very difficult to get over in a 24-hour news cycle and on twitter
0: uh, i should uh, also point out that in some of these cases we are re-engineering for production and for the things that are out of production, right? There's a whole bunch of things that we're doing, you know, because the technology has expired, right? I mean, whether it's for Singer or Javelin production or anything else that was gapped, you're not going to replicate an old wheel, you're gonna have to engineer a new wheel. And I know that that's some of the challenges uh, that we're looking at. And I know when I talk to army friends, Uh, and other industry friends that we're trying to do things to improve producibility and a whole bunch of other things. All of that takes time and there's certification, right? But at the end of the day, we also want to help uh, our ally uh, and partner. And when people just say like, oh, we'll just have to do it smarter at the, at the end of the day, they're the ones being shot at uh, ultimately. And, you know, honestly, I agree with Vladimir Zelensky the offensive is delayed because that which we promised them took so long to approve and then to send. And you know what I mean? The longer it takes you to approve, the longer it takes you to train the, the more problematic, Uh, their offensive uh, can be. Uh, Richard, um, I was gonna ask you to comment on this, but I suspect that given our past conversations, I don't know how much more you're gonna throw over uh, onto this discussion, you can do that. Uh, By the way, I would commend uh, your great note uh, uh, this week uh, on uh, sort of national ambition and how it can go wrong in the production of a uh, regional uh, aircraft. So you can tell that story briefly but along the same lines uh, and on this show we've become like ghostbusters in order to shoot down some of these uh, zombie goblins that are flying around royal air Maroc. that's it i'll just say that and and take it away
2: yeah so much to discuss thanks to the uh, thanks for the shout out on my monthly note um enjoyed writing it you know from the Perspective of somebody who once followed the emerging Indonesian aircraft industry back 30 years ago, uh, but roller Morocco is fascinating because it, it's yet yes it is it, this is a Ghostbusters moment or a, a whack-a-ball moment or whatever. Uh, everyone wants to be a super connector. You know, it worked out for the three great Gulf airlines: Etihad, Emirates, Qatar. Uh, growth has slowed for them quite a lot. It's become more of a replacement market, steady state, but. Everyone says, "Well, an industrial policy uh, to create a monster super fortress hub that connects the world." Turkey definitely next in line. Prospects of a six hundred order jet, and uh, you know, over in Asia and Europe, you saw a little bit of this with uh, with Norwegian and uh, and Air Asia talking about, you know, or Lion Air talking about creating some sort of mini regional, you know transatlantic in the case of Norwegian, but everyone wants to connect other people and take other people's traffic. And Royal Air Maroc is the latest. They don't have the best geography compared to, say, Turkey, but it's not bad, on the other hand. They don't have the best track record, but it's not bad. Um, it, nevertheless, you have to wonder to what extent we're going to see this massive uptick in wide-body orders, courtesy of uh, the Turks, the Gulf carriers, and now Royal Air Maroc. Um only to see that it's a monster case of double counting basically everyone going after someone else's traffic and saying we can get it the other guys won't
0: uh thanks very much everybody really appreciate it wouldn't be uh a weekend without you thanks so very much for joining us and have a great day and a great week and we'll look forward to having you back on again next week always a pleasure Yeah, it's a pleasure, Vargo. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Vargo. Great to be
0: on. And thanks to you all for joining us. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this uh, podcast possible. Uh, Please tune in tomorrow where Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses gives us an update on uh, Russia's war on Ukraine and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners takes a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Thanks very much. Hope everybody has a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow. Thanks very much.